The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Hello, I'm Dr. Andres Rech. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Truly, truly welcome back today. It has been quite the wait for this next episode of Fertilipod. However, this is a truly, truly special one, and we really think that you'll enjoy it. We're now back in full force, and moving forward, we aim to have a new episode every two weeks. So stay tuned, and again... Welcome back. Let's get started. For today's episode, we're having coffee with Dr. Leon Spiroff. Dr. Spiroff truly needs no introduction. His name is likely on a bookshelf somewhere somewhere around you. He is Professor Emeritus and former Chair of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Oregon Health and Science University School of Medicine and former Arthur H. Bill Professor and Chairman of the Department of Reproductive Biology at the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. Dr. Spiroff attended medical school at Case Western Reserve and then completed his OBGYN residency at Yale in New Haven. He then pursued a fellowship at the steroid training program at the Worcester Foundation for Experimental Biology and also spent time at Columbia University before returning to Yale. He's not only the author of the medical bestseller, Clinical, Endocr- sorry, Clinical Gynecologic Endocrinology and Infertility, with all of our, which all of our listeners likely have a copy of, but also founded the journal Prostaglandins. Dr. Spiroff has authored seminal contribution after seminal contribution in fields spanning prostaglandins in reproduction and for induction of labor, hormone replacement therapy, the menstrual cycle, contraception, and so many more. Together with Dr. Emery Selly, the scientific director here at AVRMA New Jersey and medical director at Yale REI, and also one of the authors of the latest edition of Spiroff's best-selling textbook. We had coffee with Dr. Spiroff and chatted about his career and writing the book on reproductive endocrinology. Let's listen in. Uh, welcome, Dr. Spiroff, and I will initiate the conversation with asking about the most obvious thing. Uh, you wrote uh, what most of us, including myself, consider the book in the field of reproductive endocrinology, and before we get into how that came to be, tell us how does it feel? Uh, there, there must be an incredible sense of accomplishment, but also a sense of massive responsibility as your book has become the unofficial and sometimes official textbook of our subspecialty. What would you say about those? I was standing on a street corner in New York City waiting for the light to change and a thought struck me like a thunderbolt and that thought was it was so important that what i said in that textbook should be correct because it would have an impact on patients and i was so struck by that responsibility the light changed and i was still standing there i wrote that thought in the forward 
to the new ninth edition. And I purposely wrote that because I wanted to tell that story so that all the authors of that ninth, of the various chapters in the ninth edition would understand the same thing. It really is a serious responsibility. And therefore, that means a lot of work to get it right. How about, uh, before we go more into the book, can you walk us through your early career? How did you become you as an expert in geoendocrinology endocrinology and an academician? And uh, you define yourself as the field defined itself. So it's a little complicated to explain, I guess. Well, it's a long story. And it actually goes back to the old country. My father and his brother and his parents were mountain peasants in Macedonia, in northern Greece, a village in northern Greece. And uh, one day in 1910, my grandfather disappeared from the village. And later in researching this story, I learned that that was common as the men would walk away seeking work. But he was gone for 10 years. He had gone to America. In July of 1920, a telegram arrives in the village from my grandmother. And it says, I'm in Sofia, Bulgaria, come join me. He had been in America for 10 years working on the railroad. And he came back to Bulgaria because working on the railroad, he worked with Bulgarians and they taught him to read and write Bulgarian. And that's why he chose Sophia. But he didn't send any money. So my grandmother and her two boys walked 500 miles to Sofia, Bulgaria. Took them three months. And the plan they found my grandfather in a hotel, cheap one. And the plan was to buy a farm. My grandfather had come back in 1920 with 8,000 American dollars. He had saved every penny. And they quickly got swindled and lost half the money. And my father who was then 18 said, if you can make that much money, let's go to America. And they did. They came to Ohio where my grandfather had a job lined up in the steel factory. They bought a little farm and that's where I grew up with my grandparents. And I didn't speak English till I went to school. So all my life in the old country, I quickly learned that the most honored professions were teachers and doctors. And all my life, my father said, you're gonna be a doctor. Well, I kind of rebelled against that autocratic position. And my plan was to be a chemist, a teacher maybe, or work for DuPont. But then I got interested in the liberal arts. And I decided that medicine combined the arts and the science. So the summer before my senior year in college, I was in the living room, my dad was on the couch and I said, dad, I've changed my mind. I wanna to go to medical school. He looked at me and he said, I know, 
No smile. He knew. And that's what I did. And when I later became a professor and a doctor, my father couldn't have been happier. So my motivation went back to that. I was the first in the family to go to college. Well then, what kind of doctor? I was in medical school in the 1960s and right about then was when natural childbirth was becoming not only popular, but publicized. And I did a little research and I learned Yale was the only place that was promoting natural childbirth. So in the summer before my senior year in college, in medical school, I went to Yale as a sub-intern and worked as an intern. And I learned you have to work hard. <laughs> Came back and later got a telegram from C. Lee Buxton inviting me to be a resident. So I came to Yale in 1962, the very same time that Nathan Case came. He came as an assistant professor. He had a salary of $8,000. My salary as a first year resident was $600. But Nate changed my life. He motivated me by example, by his teaching, by his friendship to change from obstetrics to reproductive endocrinology. And in fact, he mapped out the next 10 years of my life. It was Nate who arranged my fellowship at the Worcester Foundation. It was Nate who arranged my fellowship with Raymond Vanderwill at Columbia. I was supposed to be at Columbia two years and after one year, Nate called and said, I'm chairman now. I need you to take over the GYN endocrine lab. Can you come now? I said, oh, Nate, get me out of here. Thank you. <laughs> I was so happy to leave New York and come back to New Haven. And so I came as an assistant professor, took over the GYN endocrine lab, and Nate continued my education. He taught me how to be a great teacher. He taught me how to be an administrator. He put me in charge of the residency program. He made me assistant chairman of the department. He, he has been my dear friend, like family, and he still is today. And I look back on it, I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't, I'd do it all over again. I loved it. That's um, that's amazing. I'm a. I think I was gonna say I am, but many many people I'm sure are right now pretty glad you didn't go work for Dupont. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, Me too. Although he may have, he may he may have made more than five hundred dollars, but yes. <laughs> that is fair. You would have probably made more. To um, it, to really kind of frame both the both the, the the breadth and the depth of your contributions to our field we can we can highlight some papers uh, you've authored a blinded trial of prostaglandins for induction of labor um, something which is absolutely commonplace today in any in any labor and delivery unit in the world um, 
Regulation of the Menstrual Cycle, published in 1971, in which the curves of the menstrual cycle hormones that we all know and love were, were described. Um, we, we tend to think, at least I think I speak for my generation, I think when I say we tend to think that it was relatively easy to discover things back in the day because so many concepts we consider basic today were undiscovered yet. Do you think it's more complicated to make substantial scientific contributions as our field advances? Or do you think rather that it's easier because there's so much more information available now? I think it's actually harder for several reasons. One, there's more competition. Number two, it takes financial support, which is harder to get now. All those years as a young faculty member at Yale, we never worried about making money. We had a salary from the medical school. We saw patients because we wanted to, not because we had to. That financial burden that is so present today in clinical medicine was never there. We were free. I know Nate likes to call it independence. We had independence from financial burden worries. And so had an idea, you could go with it. I think of John Hobbins. He and I came back to Yale. He was a resident too at Yale. And we came back to Yale as young faculty at the same time. And John had this idea of ultrasonography. And I remember saying to John, John, don't waste your time with that. That's never going to amount to anything. <laughs> well, of course, you know, of course, you know, it did. And he became a prominent obstetrical ultrasonographer, but he had the freedom to do that. And that was true of those days. And I, I think that's a big, big difference. I, yes, I, going off script, I just want to say that it's, I think within my career, I have seen the change of uh, medicine, academic medicine, becoming more corporate-like and decreasing individual um, liberties in a sense, having, despite that though, uh, certain institutions uh, bravely remain committed to uh, intellectual independence of, of their faculty. And I believe Yale REI OBGYN is still one of them. Uh, I don't know how long, we sometimes talk about it. How long will it remain? Will it remain until I retire? Will it remain so after this? Uh, but there's still some, some liberty that we enjoy, at least for now. There's another thing about the past. Yale was a special place back then. I smile when people talk about evidence-based medicine as if it's something new. The words are new, but the approach isn't new. That's exactly what we had in those early days in the 70s at Yale. I, I came to call it the scholarly approach to the practice of medicine. And, and it was something that we taught each other we held each other to that principle of doing the appropriate clinical thing for your patient based on the knowledge available. And you had, you had the requirement, the responsibility to seek that knowledge. And the other thing we had was the interaction with, with each other. You know, our department here in Oregon now has something like 70 members and a lot of them don't even know each other. We knew each other. Nate introduced 
a Saturday morning lecture series for the residents. And pretty soon, all the faculty were there. And we realized that we were up there lecturing, not just to the residents, but for each other. And we held each other to that principle of doing the right thing based on the current knowledge available and that you had the responsibility to seek that knowledge. And I think that's something that a lot of us took away from Yale in those early days. And you look back on those 1970s, there were a lot of individuals who went on to good academic careers that came out of that foundation. And I think May Case was very responsible for that. Well, well, you're very kind. I was going to actually ask about those Saturday lectures. I, I heard stories about how good they were. And, and, um, and I was thinking about you the other day, you and some other people I know. Uh, I don't know if you follow, there's this uh, social media called LinkedIn where people put their, you know, they, like I'm the head of this, I'm the head of that kind of thing. But recently, um, like CEO of this company or something or chairman, but recently people started writing things about themselves rather than their titles. Like they try to say who they are. And some people say, okay, a storyteller or a paradigm changer or whatever. And I, I always think that you are a very scientific storyteller. You know, I mean, you, I, I, I think you speak extremely well and you write even better, which is uh, not necessarily combined in, you know, you, you just was, were, just a gifted person in, in, in communications, I think, who happens to be a good scientist and, and a doctor also, and a professor. But uh, can you tell us more about those Saturday lectures? I, some people told me, actually people started bringing their families sometimes. Is that true or is it just a hype? It's, it's oh, just no. A, I don't remember families coming. I don't. But okay, I do okay. know. So that, that's, that, that's a little too far. <laughs> But I do remember that nobody missed them. Nobody missed them. We'd all be there. Right not at the beginning, but pretty soon. And was the, what about the book? Was the book associated with some of those lectures at all? Or with the Saturday morning lectures? No. No, that was totally separate. We had we had a couple of questions about um, how how does one write the sort of main textbook in any field? First of all, um, if if for, first of all, if you don't mind me asking, um, how 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 dare you summarize the whole field into a one textbook? <laughs> um, well, let's go back in history. It was 1972 and I was walking down the corridor, which is right outside the chairman's office on the third floor at Yale. And coming in the other direction was Bob Glass, who was also a young faculty member at the time. And Bob stopped me and he said, Nate and I are writing a book. Would you like to join us? I said, holy cow, are you kidding? Sure. He said, well, we meet at Nate's office at five o'clock on Thursdays, be there. So I showed up the next Thursday, five o'clock, and I said, what have you guys done? <laughs> the answer was nothing. <laughs> and that's how my name came to be first. 
because I took over the organization and the promotion of the book. <laughs> and what we did for that first edition was basically each took our favorite lectures and made them into chapters. And that first book was uh, 270 pages, $17. But the difference in that book was that we did tell a story. And there, and by being, by Bob and Nate allowing me to be in charge of the book, I made sure that there was a flow and a consistency from beginning to end. That you didn't say something in chapter five that differed with something you said in chapter two. That never happened. But there was always a story. And it was a clinical story based on physiological explanations and basis. And that was the fundamental principle of the book, consistent from beginning to end. And I think that was the reason for its popularity right from the beginning. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I remember um, not, not actually that long ago when I, when I first um, opened Spiroff, it was the eighth edition, I think. Um, I, I remember thinking, okay, this is a book I'm going to like because it's going to be about something I'm really interested in. Um, but it's this kind of overwhelming, massive textbook, not unlike things like Williams Obstetrics or other huge textbooks um, of that nature. Um, but I remember it was, it was very um, sort of interesting from the very beginning. Um, there was this like style, like it felt like you were just kind of like sitting there telling this whole thing. Um, I find it really interesting that not only it, do the thing, you know, do the concepts not differ from one chapter to another, but even the style and the flow written by different authors over nine editions um, somehow has managed to stay a very sort of flowing story. It doesn't have, it, it's clearly a, a, an authoritative <laughs> text, but it doesn't have this huge gravitas of, you know, I'm imparting this giant knowledge on you for some reason. I like your word style. And let me just correct something you said. Over, over the first eight editions, I pretty much wrote the whole thing. <laughs> that, after, that explains uh, a lot. After, after, edition, after edition two or three, well, it was the fifth edition that we made a quantum jump from three or 400 pages to eight to a thousand pages. And I made the decision, I didn't want someone in practice to say, I couldn't find it in Spiroff. <laughs> I wanted it all to be there, but it was still the same style and I wrote most of it. So there was that consistency and that flow and the same style. And I'm, you know, when the ninth edition came out, I was, I asked Hugh, Hugh Taylor, I said, Hugh, do you keep any of my words? He said, wait till you see it. And when I saw it and I saw that a lot of my words are still there, I was, I was moved by that, really moved by that. I mean, that's, maybe that's the best statement of all that I did something very well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a statement that you did something really well, that it sold Correct me if you have a, a, a more recent figure, um, a little over 300,000 copies and it's been translated to 
eight languages that I know of, maybe maybe more. Um, 11. 11, there you go. Sorry about that. I was outdated. Um, but I, I think that um, my, my question for you is, did you sort of know you were writing a landmark textbook when you wrote it? Or was this like, I'm going to write this and see how it goes um, kind of thing? Oh, oh my gosh, no. A young faculty member saying I'm writing a book and I'm writing a landmark book? No, there, no way, no <laughs> way. No, goodness, I was typing it away. I typed the whole thing on my Royal Portable typewriter. Those first <laughs> editions, the whole thing. No, it, it was work and it was fun. So it was a... <laughs> truly it was an, a joy to do it and I came to learn that I, I enjoyed the research involved I enjoyed the work and it's not like I ever had the thought in my mind that this was a landmark going to be a bestseller no I was just doing something I loved to do yeah. that, that was it I was going to say just that it's um, you can tell. I mean, reading a fair number of textbooks in in all of our lives, I think so far, um, I, I think you know you usually get the impression that the author knows what they're talking about really well. You very rarely get the impression um, that the author really loves what they're talking about, and that's something that uh, Spiroff does really well. Um, I think it was the first medical textbook I've ever seen with exclamation marks in it. <laughs> <laughs> or, or historical comments in it also. And different colors to emphasize take-home points. Absolutely. Yeah, those were all those, those were all my ideas. Yeah, I, I, would, I was just going to... Let me tell you about the title. Sure. When ahead. you did my introduction, I noticed you stumbled over the title. There's a reason for that. I was riding my bicycle to work. I rode my bike to work for 11 years at, in New Haven in the winter. I think it was February. And I was thinking about the book. And I was thinking, I need a title that is a little bit awkward <laughs> so that people will refer to the book as Spiroff because they won't, they won't want to handle that awkward title. And that's how it came to be clinical gynecologic endocrinology and infertility. That was that was fantastic. I love it. I love it. I, I don't think anybody knew this. Uh, before I just go to his second second question, I want to say that you know we have interviewed people we considered really, really uh, prominent. Uh, scientists and clinicians in this field. Some of them I have seen in their house are collecting your book edition by edition. They have from one oh. to eight. There's a number of the lead, there's a number of people who are very, very prominent and you go to their houses and you can find your books from one to eight, nine, eight at least. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I was, I was visiting Nashville. Do you remember Ann Wentz? Yeah. Maybe not. She was, she was a pretty outspoken woman. Uh, reproductive endocrinologist at Nashville, at Vanderbilt. And I rode up in the elevator with her and she had my book. And for some reason, she had opened up and to some pages and I noticed a lot of underlining. I said, oh my goodness, Anne, you have underlined a lot of the things that I wrote there. And she said, yes, I've underlined all the mistakes I found. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> that, that's fine. Dr. Spear, if I wanted to change gears a little bit, um, talking to you, I, I couldn't help but ask you about softball. We didn't we didn't mention it in the introduction, but you're I think a senior softball so, sorry, a senior softball world champion. Is that right? In 2016, our team played uh, in the division of age 80 and above in the senior world games in St. George, Utah. It's a huge thing. 11,000 athletes over the age of 50, 4,000 softball players. And we won the gold medal in our age 80 plus division. Congratulations. Wow. That's huge. That's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's amazing. Uh, and there's a, there's a message there. I, I was talking about how I came to love writing and doing the research behind writing, that I, I truly loved it. And that has to do with what I would tell young people. In fact, I tell, tell, told my own children the same thing. Find your passion and pursue it. Because I learned if you really love what you're doing, it's, it's not hard work at all. That was true for the book. And it was true for when it came time for me to retire. And I decided, I want to go back to something I enjoyed when I was young. So I started playing senior softball even before I fully retired. And I found a passion for my retirement, just as I had during my work years. And I think that is so important to enjoying your life. Absolutely. I, I understand. I understand. However, you you didn't really start playing softball until you were in your seventies. Is that right? Seventy one. <laughs> Seventy one. Fair, fair enough. How um, th this. I mean, you started playing this new sport at 71 and you became a, a world champion. Um, what, what, I think this is a little more than a hobby for you. Um, what, what, does softball, what does softball mean to you? Okay, I'll tell you a story. In 2012, uh, so I've been playing softball since, um, what, 2006, so six years. In 2012, I was diagnosed with the lymphoma and I was treated with chemotherapy. And that was over the summer. And I continued to go to the softball games. The camaraderie of your teammates, not only your teammates, even the, the men on the other teams is so wonderful in a senior softball. And when you have a problem like fighting a cancer, which is truly combat, all of a sudden, every one of those guys, they were there for me. I couldn't get depressed. Their support, their cheers. In September, my oncologist said, you're in remission. And as my wife and I walked out the door, she turned to me and she said, do you think you could have done this without softball? Well, I don't know for sure, but I can tell you softball sure made it easier. 
it, it, I call it my softball family. It's truly like a family. The support it gives you, the friendship it gives you, true love really makes it a wonderful thing. That's that's awesome. So so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. On the um, on the subject of storytelling, um, well, you've also authored, I think, uh, other books that have nothing to do with medicine novels, right? <laughs> yeah, a few. I just finished one. You you just finished one. What is it? What is it about? I just finished a biography of Harry Lane, and you don't know who Harry Lane was, which is why I I wrote the book. <laughs> Harry Lane was a progressive physician and politician. He was the mayor of Portland and U.S. Senator from Oregon in the early 1900s. And he was, at that time, politics were pretty corrupt back then. Essentially, city government and perhaps federal too, very much involved with business. For example, people on the city council, men on the city council were businessmen. The city council involved was a part-time job and they didn't separate their business life from their public life, their obligations as a public servant. And Harry Lane fought that successfully to a significant degree. Um, historians have said he was an ineffective politician because he lost most of his battles with the city council. But he was unique because it, during that battle, he would publicize it to the newspapers, in speeches, in meeting people, and he educated the public about the issue. And that was when the Oregon system of initiative and referendum first came to the state and to cities. And so in response to Harry Lane's education, the citizens would put on the ballot a particular initiative that he was promoting and it would pass. So he turned out to be an effective politician because he accomplished changes through that system not through the day-to-day -day government. So I just finished that one. <laughs> All right, you piqued my interest. I'm going to go read about Harry Lane today. <laughs> Beyond being a you know giant author in our field and in other fields, uh, you have also been the chairman at two departments of OBGYN, both at Case Western and Oregon Health uh, Science University. And I understand that you have uh, very interesting views about academic medicine and research and the different models between the United States and Europe's. Uh, would you care to comment on those? Uh, my years as chair at Oregon and then in Cleveland were exactly the years where this fundamental change was taking place, where the funding for a department shifted to a dependency on the clinical earnings of a department. And it was a source of tremendous conflict because I and my colleagues in the other chair slot, slots didn't grow up on that system, under that system. We found ourselves meeting other chairs who now were getting 
business degrees. We found the pressure exerted by the president of a medical center, less so the deans, but the president or CEO of the medical center, that those that were recruited in those days were responding heavily to this economic pressure and therefore passing that pressure on to the chairs. And it was not, that was not a happy time. That was not a comfortable time. When I got recruited to Cleveland, the hospital for women, it had its own building, McDonald Hospital for Women, was in the red. And I was given the challenge, almost an order, to bring that financial statement into the black. After two years, we were approaching it. And by the third year, we were in the black, largely on the income of the new faculty I had recruited. Well, at the same time that that came about, a new CEO was hired for university hospitals. Well, I called a meeting with the dean, the chief financial officer of the hospital and the CEO. And I showed them the numbers and I basically said, I want some of that money. I want some of the profit from the women's hospital to fund the department so that we can have a faculty with time for research and teaching. I want an academic department. Well, that new president of the university hospitals did not like that message and he wasn't about to share the profit with me. And so in 1989, I was very happy to come back to Oregon as a professor and not a chair because the chair had become a very difficult and in my view, unpleasant job. Wow, I, can I ask you just for, the, for those of us who have sort of only known this model, um, what is what is a good alter, alternative or at least <laughs> what, what was it like before? Where did this funding come from? Where, how, how should sort of, how, what, what, what are we trying to revert back to? The funding at Yale largely uh, came from the medical school. So it was based upon tuition and endowments. You also had grants, but not to the degree that you have today, and certainly not the large financial numbers today. In Oregon, the department was based on state dollars. So we had hardcore, unchanging, dependable money. And that's what gave us independence. It seems to me to get back to a, a truly academic department, we have to get back to that principle. Somehow we have to have a solid financial foundation that leaves some independence for the faculty. Um, I'm not sure how to do that. Is that through state government? Is it through federal government? Is it through Medicare? Those problems are beyond me at this point in time. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you for sharing your insights on it, though. Appreciate it. Well, I think uh, this was a, a very, very interesting 
conversation, uh, going from the story of the book to your success uh, and the role of uh, softball in your life to uh, the story of uh, Harry Lane and and how he uh, made an impact on uh, on on its on his society. Uh, to finish, uh, we generally want to ask our guests for their vision for the future of reproductive medicine. In what areas do you think we will see the next major breakthroughs? And what advice do you have for people like Andres here, who is now entering our field? Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, I think, I think the future is in molecular biology and genetics. Uh, just to enter that field for a clinician, for example, is, is daunting when you're competing with multiple PhDs with specific training in that area. Let me leave it with a message. I think that the magic of being a clinician, a physician, will never disappear. I think when you close the door on you and your patient in your office, the financial worries, the departmental concerns, that's on the other side of the door. What you have in that connection with your patient is something that is so rewarding, not only for you, but for the patient. And that's something that will not change. And I think that should be the draw, the attraction for young people to want to share in that magic. That's such a that's such a wonderful, wonderful closing. Andres, did you want to say something? I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Sparrow, for taking the time. It was such a pleasure. And this is exactly what we were hoping for. And you are an extremely bright person who has a lot to say in so many different fields. And, and you say it so wonderfully. So thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. This was a lot of fun for me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of FertilityPod by EVRMA. We hope you enjoyed it and that you'll subscribe or leave us a review to let us know how we're doing. Join us next time for more cutting-edge research, talks with renowned speakers, and all things reproductive medicine. See you next time.